Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Welcome to LawPod, a podcast produced by staff and students at the School of Law at Queen's University Belfast. This is the second episode in the Legal Lexicon series, which looks at abstract legal concepts and explores them in a more accessible format. But this episode is different. Today, we will look back at the career of Lord Brian Kerr, who was a justice of the United Kingdom Supreme Court from 2009 until his retirement in September 2020. Before that, he was the last ever law lord appointed to the House of Lords, following his tenure as Lord Chief Justice of Northern Ireland. Lord Kerr sadly passed away in December 2020, leaving a remarkable legacy as one of the greatest and most consequential judges in Northern Ireland and UK history. In this episode, we will hear from four people who knew and were influenced by Lord Kerr. Joining us today are Lady Brenda Hale, former president of the UK Supreme Court, Professors Claire Archbold and Bryce Dixon, both of Queen's University Belfast, and Miss Manya Onyadike Danes QC of the bars of Northern Ireland, Ireland, England and Wales, and St. Vincent and the Grenadines. Thank you all for joining us today. I'm going to start with a question based on what Lord Kerr said extrajudicially uh, at the end of uh, 2019. He was speaking as part of the UK Supreme Court 10 year anniversary series, and he said, as I get older, I find that the chance to be provocative is not to be missed. So, Lady Hale, perhaps we could start with you. To what extent was Lord Kerr a provocative judge on the Supreme Court? Well, he was correct to say that he became more and more provocative as time went on. When he first joined us, having been Lord Chief Justice of Northern Ireland, He was quite a standard law lord. Nothing very startling about what he did and said. But as time went on, uh, he developed a distinctive uh, approach to the cases, particularly in the context of human rights, and uh, was more and more prepared to voice his distinctive point of view, even if uh, nobody else was quite prepared to share it. And the uh, examples that I would give of that are his judgments in the two cases about the benefit cap. In the first of those, uh, he decided that he would devote himself to arguing that international treaties could be automatically incorporated into UK law without legislation, which was a very radical thought. Um, And he knew he was dissenting, so he didn't mind doing it. And another example would be his uh, leading judgment in uh, the case about um, El Ghazuli, the case was called. Uh, It was about uh, the UK 
sending evidence to the United States with a view to uh, two people who'd, who were accused of very, very serious uh, crimes uh, in the Middle East, with a view to their being tried in the US uh, without the US assuring the UK that they would not impose or execute the death penalty. Now, Lord Kerr took the view that the death penalty was now uh, contrary to the common law of the United Kingdom, and that for that reason, uh, the government could not lend its assistance in such a way that it might be imposed. The rest of us decided the case on the basis of the um, Data Protection Act. And in fact, the government went along with that in due course. Uh, but Lord Kerr went further than any of us had done in a very eloquent judgment, um, which uh, set out his views on the death penalty. Those are the ones I would uh, point to more than his judgment in the Northern Ireland abortion case uh, as indicating his tendency to become more and more provocative the older he got. Thank you. Yeah, we'll, we'll be returning to actually the... Um... The idea of pushing the boundaries of the law and seeing the way in which the law might evolve through consideration of his judgments. And of course, we will be returning to the uh, Human Rights Commission case uh, on abortion. Um, but if we could um, get the advocate's view on this, Mazani um, Degedens. Of course, you would use a lot of Lord Kerr's judgments in your work, and it goes without saying the obvious authority of such judgments, especially coming from the Supreme Court. But what value do you see specifically in his judgments, and why would you go to them to inform you about the state of the law? Uh, that's um, difficult question, as almost anything is about Lord Kerr, um, for, for a start, it's, it's actually quite difficult to comment on the influence that a judge has on you, because um, you don't always know it's happening at the time you're using his judgments. Um, but I would say the influence he had on me, and he's probably from the Northern Ireland point of view, the judge that's had the greatest influence on me. And it wasn't always because actually I agreed with what he was saying. But I always looked at his judgments because I felt I was trying to see a direction of travel. And I thought, in, from a judicial point of view, he had the imagination and courage to identify travel. Now, that travel didn't always lead you to a successful endpoint. But it certainly, it certainly gave you a, a sort of an out-of-the-box kind of way to look at things. And, and I very often found myself having to be in that situation and needing to be creative. And, and I used his judgments um, from that point of view. I'll just give you one sort of example. And maybe it also speaks to the question that you asked before about whether he became more liberated <laughs> as as um, as he became older or more senior, I would like to say. Because I don't think it's actually got anything to becoming older necessarily. But I think it is becoming more senior and, and more maybe more confident in his position. I don't know. Um, but I remember 
dealing with uh, the issue of status in adoption. Uh, Lady Hale probably remember this because there was, was RePP or RePG uh, as it was um, reported, which dealt with that in relation to unmarried um, parents. Um, now, when that decision came to the Court of Appeal, Lord Kerr was then Lord Chief Justice, and um, and the, the view of the Court of Appeal got overturned at the Supreme Court, and I'm very glad it did. But it's very interesting judgment to see uh, what happened then. And then I think he was conducting himself in the way that Lord Lady Hale said was a rather more conventional terms. Um, and it fell to me to argue the case in, in terms of same-sex marriage. Uh, and that was a, a, another case dealing with status as well. And, and, and that was just, uh, Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission took that case. But it didn't get as far as the Supreme Court, although there was a, an application to appeal to it because we succeeded uh, both at first instance of the Court of Appeal. But the interesting thing about it is that when I subsequently, in just thinking about this um, this webinar realized that over that, that period of time when the application would be being made to, to appeal it to the Supreme Court, Lord Kerr was at that time on the panel that determined which cases from Northern Ireland you would receive. And I think he was dealing with about 74% of them. And I rather like to think that he saw that and decided that he was going to, not he personally, but the panel together, was going to refuse uh, the application to appeal because that was all resolved and I just thought it was such a wonderful irony that the position that he was taking when the first iteration of that came to him, the Court of Appeal, was one that he didn't appear to be able to countenance. But by the time several steps on we'd, we'd got to it in another form, that matter was absolutely resolved and we moved on from that issue of status and I just rather thought that was amusing. But that... I found him very ready to evolve in that way in his thinking. I, don't, I, don't, I never found him to be the kind of judge that was constrained by what he might have said previously when it came to another case. So from that point of view, from a practitioner's point of view, he was a very good judge to try, when, seriously speaking, when you're, when you're looking and thinking, where are we going? What's the direction of travel of this area of law? Who's got the courageous thought on it? Can I use that? Uh, and, and align my arguments to that. He was certainly a judge who was the one that I would go to, to probably first. And I Could I just that. interject for a moment about that? Be because, of course, I was, I was chairing the panel which refused permission to appeal in your case, and I had been <laughs> on the court in the earlier repeat or re-G case. Uh, and, of course, he had to go along with it, because we all do. Once a matter has been resolved by a higher court, we have to agree with it, and we very rarely depart from it. And it was absolutely obvious what the answer was, and the courts in Northern Ireland have got it right. So, of course. But you're right about the direction of travel. <laughs> Sorry about that, but I thought I wanted to make that clear. No, no, absolutely. Uh, picking up on the sort of uh, Lord Kerr's involvement in the uh, appeals going from Northern Ireland to the Supreme Court. Uh, Professor Dixon, you um, did a, a very detailed uh, look at the sort of first 10 years of the Supreme Court and Northern Irish appeals going up to it uh, in an article with Dr. Conor McCormick, also at Queen's University, um, late last year in the Modern Law Review. And perhaps you could um, tell us a little bit about your research and 
the sort of trajectory that you saw or the sort of influence, the institutionality of appeals going to uh, the Supreme Court from Northern Ireland and the influence that Lord Kerr would have had on those appeals? Yes, well, more so than any of his predecessors from Northern Ireland who went to the top UK court, I think he became very much the, the go-to person uh, in that court uh, as regards appeals from Northern Ireland. Um, he was on the court longer than any other uh, judge from Northern Ireland, talking about the Supreme Court and, and the House of Lords, obviously, before it. Um, it has become customary for the Northern Ireland judge, if there is one on the, on the top court, to um, be involved in the appeals from Northern Ireland. But I think in Lord Kerr's case, that was even more true than it had been previously. And he seems to have played a more active role in those cases than his predecessors did in the, in the previous cases. Um, I think of the 35 appeals, I think it's 35 altogether, that went to the Supreme Court during his time there. He was involved in 31 of them in some form or other. One or two he couldn't be involved in because, of course, he had sat in the case earlier when it was in the courts of Northern Ireland. Um, but he, he took on the lead road, he, role. He began, uh, um, well, he, he became the, the, the person who wrote the, the lead judgment. I, I don't know whether that's by accident or design. Lady Hale can tell us more about how the decision is made as to who should write the leading judgment. But it seems clear that that he 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 was the person that the court primarily relied upon to get the the law in Northern Ireland right. And I'm speculating here, but even in the in the first Miller case, which of course was a judgment of the whole court, um, the the references from Northern Ireland. I'd, I'd be I'd be surprised if the section of the judgment dealing with the references from Northern Ireland were not penned or at least heavily edited by Lord Kerr because the, his colleagues would probably have looked to him for for what he thought about the answer to those issues. So um, I think he took seriously his responsibility as the judge with knowledge of the Northern Irish legal system on the Supreme Court and his colleagues certainly through time, but from very, from very early on in his time on the uh, top court, they, they were willing to rely upon him to play that role. Thank you. Um, we, we will come back um, to the topic of a Northern Ireland voice in the Supreme Court um, in a bit. But before we get to that, I was wondering, Professor Archibald, could you tell us a little bit about Lord Kerr's time as Lord Chief Justice, and in particular, um, the administration of justice while he was the Lord Chief Justice, which isn't really a side of a judge that is very widely considered in, in, in the public, and, and his interest in making sure that there was access to the courts. So... I was Lord. I was uh, Lord Kerr's legal secretary when he was Lord Chief Justice from 2006 to, until he went to the Supreme Court, and uh, the legal secretary is um, the leader of the legal unit, uh, which is a research unit that he uh, really envisaged and set up when he was Lord Chief Justice. 
but also part of the office which runs the courts um, in Northern Ireland, because you'll remember that um, just before this, in the 2002 Justice Act, a lot of the functions of the Lord Chancellor had been um, devolved to the Lord Chief Justice of Northern Ireland. And this was in the period when we were waiting for the whole of the justice system to be devolved. So he had a lot more duties than his predecessors had had as head of the judiciary and um, as having a lot of responsibility for the running of the courts. And that meant that he did less judging as Lord Chief Justice than, than he might have in former times, although there were a number of big cases that that he sat on. Um, Repee was one. Another was, it was called Reesee and others in the Court of Appeal, but it was Ree McGee when it got to the Supreme Court about uh, the uh, surveillance of prisoners' uh, correspondence and prisoners' conversations with their solicitors. Um, so he, I think what, what my um, overwhelming impression of him at the time was that he he was he was a great um, advocate for the adversarial system. He believed in the court process, but he was aware of the pressure that the court system was under through the numbers of cases that there were, the lack of time there was to prepare, the pressure on the judiciary. And he was looking with a, a helicopter view at the at, at at how to make sure that justice was done in cases across the system rather than just in the cases that came before him. It's interesting, of course, that you mentioned the uh, the Reese, the McGee case that went before the Supreme Court. Um, that was one of the more controversial cases um, at that time concerning whether or not solicitor-client communications could be subjected to surveillance under the Regulation of Investigatory Powers Act. Um, and the Court of Appeal came to one conclusion and the Supreme Court came to another conclusion. Um, and I wonder, Professor Archibald, if you could go into um, when Lord Kerr sat on the Reese Court of Appeal panel as Lord Chief Justice, um, how he managed to, within the adversarial system, how he managed to balance these sort of um, conflicting arguments between the right of a person sitting in a police station to have legal advice and, and, and for that to be protected um, and the statutory surveillance mechanisms under the 2000 Act. It was an interesting judgment because it's a case where it would be very easy to take one of two views, either to say, well, this is appalling, this is dreadful, this should never happen, or to say, well, Reaper says that you can do it, so you can do it. And that was a case where he, uh, as I think was characteristic of his judgments then, used a very rigorous legal analysis to look at the safeguards that there were and to acknowledge that there, there might be situations where an independent um, and enhanced authorization would, 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 permit, would permit it but not to have um, a routine uh, or a thoughtless uh, infringement of, of rights. And again, he, he based himself very much in the convention in that judgment. But there's at the time, 
he he gave a speech which unfortunately uh, isn't isn't on any websites because it was before we put speeches up on websites on judicial deference in 2007 and i think that was a speech where he was thinking about what is the role of the independent judiciary and how are there areas where and again you saw in rep where he very much said you know, this is something for the elected institutions. It's not something for us as judges. Um, his thinking about the relationship between the executive and the judiciary. But by the time we get to Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission, um, towards the end of his time in the Supreme Court, he uh, nodded to the idea that this might be a matter for the elected institutions, but said that, of course, the Northern Ireland Assembly wasn't sitting at the time. And therefore, it was something which the court uh, would would look at and would take decisions in. So I think that his time, I think Reese is an interesting case from his time as Lord Chief Justice, because it also possibly reflects an understanding of the different role of the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court in the in in the lexicon of the Constitution. Yeah, um, that's. A very interesting perspective, because of course we tend sometimes rather um, casually to conflate um, judicial viewpoints along a sort of spectrum, thinking that some judges are conservative, some judges are liberal, and that's just the way they are. But of course, there is a hierarchy of courts that we have, and the Court of Appeal is limited in its own space by the authorities handed down originally from the House of Lords and then uh, currently the Supreme Court. Um, and so within the Supreme Court, I suppose, there's greater freedom, and perhaps Lady Hale can um, shed more light on this, greater freedom to consider whether or not actually the state of the law is correct or should move Oh, of course there is, uh, because the Supreme Court, uh, like the House of Lords, is not bound to follow any of the decisions of the lower courts. And in exceptional circumstances, if justice requires it, they can even depart from their own previous decisions. So they have a much greater freedom than any of the lower courts have, whether it's in Northern Ireland, England and Wales or Scotland. Uh, to think things through from a basis of first principles. That doesn't mean to say that the Supreme Court is making it up as it goes along, far from it. But it is trying to look at things as a matter of principle. And I would also like to agree with the point that a judge's thinking and approach can develop over time. And I would very much agree that that is what happened with Lord Kerr. As I said earlier, when he joined the House of Lords as the very last law lord ever appointed, we didn't have any particular impression that he was the great forward-thinking liberal that he subsequently uh, became or emerged as. I think he would say that uh, he emerged as such. Uh, and that people who had known what he was really like when he was in Northern Ireland would have understood that. One of his most, uh, I suppose, keenly awaited, certainly in Northern Ireland, um, one of his most keenly awaited opinions 
was in the Human Rights Commission case. Um, and at the time that the Supreme Court handed down judgment in that case, um, there was a considerable amount of coverage of the judgment, both within the sort of legal practice and academia fraternities, but also beyond. And Lady Hale, if we could discuss that judgment itself, because it was so unusual, um, both in what it became, but also in, it was landmark in the issues that it had to consider. Um, never before had the whole state of abortion law in Northern Ireland um, been scrutinized to such a degree against um, the European Convention on Human Rights. And the net result of the judgment was to split the court into two. Three. Um, on the... Three. Three. Actually, yes, it is three. Um, a loss on the procedural standing point for the commission, but an overall win on the substantive position that in fact abortion law breached the European Convention. And perhaps Lady Hale, you could tell us a bit about what it was like to be on that panel and the contribution that Lord Kerr um, made both to the overall um, thinking in the case, but also given his knowledge of Northern Ireland and, and the particular social and political circumstances that would have been the backdrop to that case? Well, obviously, there are things that I cannot talk about. You'll understand that. It's not open to sure. me to reveal the deliberations that took place between the justices in the case. But sure. The thing that um, is, of course, remarkable about that case uh, is the position of Lord Mance because Lord Mance was with the majority firmly convinced, very firmly convinced, that in the three respects uh, that we discussed, Northern Ireland abortion law was uh, in violation of the right to respect for family life, private and family life, uh, protected by Article 8. Uh, but such was his intellectual honesty that he was equally firmly convinced uh, that the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission did not have the standing to bring the case. So you do have to admire that. I took the view that Lord Kerr would be the person who had the clearest understanding of the thinking and background to the role of the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission, and that if he considered uh, that it was within their powers to bring the proceedings, he was likely to be right. I also independently, of course, read the legislation and convinced myself beyond doubt that he was right. Uh, so that was the frustrating thing about that case. Uh, we perched on different branches in relation to the um, violation of the uh, convention uh, because, in fact, Five of us considered that in relation to fatal fetal abnormality, it was a breach of the convention because Lady Black joined us in that, but she didn't join us in the other two respects. And of course, Lord Kerr and Lord Wilson considered uh, that not only was 
uh, it in breach of um, Article 8. It was also in breach of Article 3 in human and degrading treatment in certain respects. So it was a complicated alignment of views with different people perching on different branches of, of the tree. And a lot, I can say this, there was a lot of toing and froing, coming and going, thinking it all out very uh, fully and carefully. Um, for example, on the question of incest, uh, we did a lot of thinking about that, which was way beyond what had gone on in the arguments in the in the court. Um, so, uh, yes, it was a case about which we all agonised, I am sure. Uh, but Lord Kerr was the one to whom I turned on the basic question of the powers of the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission. Can I just interject there? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Two points. Um, it's interesting that when he was a judge in Northern Ireland, he was involved in the first Human Rights Commission case that, that went to the House of Lords, which was again about the powers of the Commission to intervene or to apply to intervene in court cases. And he alone amongst the judges in Northern Ireland thought that the Commission did have that power. He was very, well, I, I was about to say very pro the Human Rights Commission, but he, 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 he saw how important the Human Rights Commission was as an institution established under the Good Friday Agreement. And just by the way, I think he can go down as a very big supporter of the Good Friday Agreement. And he strove to interpret legislation to make it compatible with that agreement when necessary. But it's interesting as well that this whole issue of abortion is one which might provide evidence for how he, he developed his judicial thinking because when he was a judge in Northern Ireland, he, uh, sitting as a single judge, dismissed an application by the Family Planning Association asking for a court order uh, requiring the Department of Health to issue guidance on the law on abortion in Northern Ireland. And he somehow came to the conclusion that there was no need for guidance because the law was, um, was quite clear and that and the practitioners, medical practitioners, knew exactly when and when they could not um, carry out an abortion. I think we can see that his, his views shifted a bit. Of course, a lot depends on the, the, the wording of the legislation in question and so forth. And the law could be, could be certain, uh, but bad. Uh, but I think, he did, I think he did shift his position on, on that issue when he got to the, the, the big um, abortion case brought by the Human Rights Commission in Lady Hale's time. Yeah, maybe I'd like to say a couple of things about what, what's been said so far. Um, the first about um, whether the human rights case was the first to really call for judicial scrutiny uh, in relation to the law on abortion in, in Northern Ireland in, in the, and, and be subjected to the kind of analysis that happened in the human Human Rights Commission case and that Lady Hale sat on. I'm not sure that's entirely right, actually, because I think the context for that had already been provided in the AB case. I thought I think uh, both Lady Hale and Lord Kerr were on. In fact, there's a very, very powerful, just short description of where we were. I think it was given by Lord Wilson. I think, yes, right at the beginning, 
and uh, he gives from A through to L the most extraordinary synopsis of the position that uh, young women and girls and any woman really requiring that kind of healthcare faced in Northern Ireland at the time. And of course there, um, both Lady Hale and Lord Kerr were dissenters in that. And that goes to something else I think, Anurag, that you were saying, which is the power of dissenting. And what I remember that case more for is how it set it up for a change in terms of enabling women coming from Northern Ireland to England to have access to free termination. Uh, the fact that they were dissenting judges um, was irrelevant to the power that they had in that case, actually. Uh, and so that's one point I wanted to make. Um, the other point in relation to the Human Rights Commission case when it came to the Supreme Court is, firstly, I do want to very much agree with Lady Hale as to the power of Lord Mance's judgment. It was an extraordinary judgment to read. Uh, only extraordinary because how powerful it reads off the page when you read it. And right at the end, of course, he was quite prophetic. In fact, I latched directly onto right at the end, which is that if anybody wanted, notwithstanding the fact that the whole thing was arbitrary in many respects because there was no standing. But if any if anybody wanted to take that case, it would be very difficult to see how it might be resisted or worse of that effect, which is right at the end of his judgment. But that's, of course, exactly what we did do in the UJR. Um, so he, he provided that springboard. Um, but to, to go back to that case in terms of um, Lord Kerr, his judgment was very powerful for, for different reasons, uh, apart from the fact that he was only one of two uh, that found it was a breach of Article 3, which is a very, very powerful thing to see uh, for those working in that field uh, in relation to that area of law. But, but also, in a way, to, uh, to the voice he gave to all those who, as he described them, were courageous enough to give their testimony. It's a very difficult thing to give testimony about those sort, that sort of thing, certainly still in Northern Ireland. It really was. Uh, and he gave them a space because he recorded so much of what they had said in their affidavits in his judgment. Whether he knew the power of him doing that and the effect that it would have on those people who gave that testimony, I, d I don't know. But, but having worked with certainly two of those, uh, it was an extraordinary moment for them to read that in a Supreme Court judgment. The other thing, of course, it did, along with all the others, uh, who uh, went on to give judgments on the substantive issues and not to be stopped at just the fact that they couldn't agree um, in a majority way that the commission had standing. What, what, uh, the other thing that it did is it, it continued the spotlight on circumstances in Northern Ireland. And, and that, again, uh, provided a means to see change in the law. And, and that's precisely what happened, not necessarily in the way that people thought it would, but nonetheless it, it did happen. And we're still wrestling with the outworkings of that now. But nonetheless, uh, it, it occurred. Uh, and so that's just what I want to say about the power of a judgment, whether, whether you're in the main swing of what the other justices are saying or whether you're saying it in your own particular way, dissenting or no, one should never lose um, 
track of how powerful that is. And, and sometimes when you stand up in court and you read an extract of a judgment like that, uh, it, it, is, it is a good moment as an advocate to have those sorts of judgments to be able to read from. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm glad you that you mentioned that, Monia, because it was something that struck me about about that judgment. Those very powerful statements that he made of the circumstances of the the, the women who were associated with the Human Rights Commission's application, and it reminded me of the the, the judgments that he would give in sentencing appeals when he was in the Court of Appeal, where he always took the time to to say what the impact of the crime had been on the victim and not just to read out the victim's statement but to 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 give um time to the victim or their family and i think that was something that certainly always struck me about his criminal judgments that he gave time for people to be heard and he never lost sight of the fact that there were individuals behind these very complex, sometimes doctrinal issues. Um, and I think that the Human Rights Commission case was a very good um, continuation of that part of his judicial practice. Yes, and um, the humanity, I suppose, in, in, in Lord Kerr's judgment, so the, the, the focus of Lord Kerr on these sort of particularly um, sensitive uh, matters um, and the humanity that he showed in them, um, I think also extended uh, Professor Archibald to those with whom he worked. Certainly, I think while he was Lord Chief Justice um, and to another extent, um, while he was uh, a Justice of the Supreme Court, because um, Lady Hale, it's true, he, he was um, in charge of the judicial assistance uh, scheme in the Supreme Court. He was in charge of recruiting to the judicial assistance scheme in the Supreme Court. Uh, and so, although, uh, obviously, because they were going to be employed as, as temporary, not graded civil servants, but temporary uh, public employees, uh, our um, personnel officer had to be uh, basically involved, uh, but uh, there were always uh, justices uh, involved in the uh, selection of the shortlist and then in interviewing the shortlist and then in the selection. And Lord Kerr was uh, the one in charge of all of that. And uh, he has also took a great interest in the young people who came to work with us for just under a year. Uh, and was very concerned, obviously, about their development and their welfare. But I think he also took quite an interest in the welfare of his colleagues as well. Uh, he was uh, one of the most senior members of the court uh, towards the end. He presided quite a lot, uh, but he was a great peacemaker. You know, if, if things were getting a little bit fraught, which just occasionally they could, where people disagreed with one another or something happened, Lord Kerr would always be the one to come along and try and, and make peace. Um, I mean, other people did it too, but, but he was particularly um, good at that because he was on good terms with everybody. 
And we always used to say the astonishing thing about Lorcaire was the warmth of his heart and the iciness of his room. He kept his room <laughs> at a temperature, which meant that most of us would refuse to have meetings there because it was so cold. And in fact, eventually, he had to warm it up a bit because it was killing all his plants. But the contrast, as I say, between his temperament and the temperature of his room was remarkable. Those, those, those are certainly things that um, I, I, I would um, remember as well. Yeah, um, I, I know that. Yes, Professor Archibald, I was just going to come to you and ask you about um, his time as Lord Chief Justice, and yeah. There, there was a reason why I wore wool scarves throughout my time as his legal yes, secretary. Yeah. <laughs> because, uh, but, but no, um, the, there was a there, there was a staff of probably around thirty people in the office of the Lord Chief Justice, and it was a mark of his temperament that he would give us a, a Christmas supper every year. Um, you know, at at his own expense, and until our numbers got too great at his own house. And there was something about, I mean, Sir Declan Morgan, his successor, has very much done the same thing, but he he was someone who you wanted to follow. He was excited and energised by the work that he did and by the cases before him. And he he brought us into the circle. I mean, we were junior and mid-ranking civil servants, but he he made us feel as if we were part of something important. He always took the time to, for example, when we did a piece of research for him, he would ask, so what do you make of the point? And we would stumble and stutter our way through what we thought, because particularly when you were new to the office, that was a completely terrifying experience. But um, it really developed us all as lawyers. And we knew that he took an interest in us, not just in the work that he could get from us. I, th I think um, we can see sort of testimonials, certainly um, testimonials from judicial assistants who um, have been in the Supreme Court and uh, who are still in the Supreme Court, who speak extremely warmly of, of Lord Kerr, but also not just within the legal profession, but also Lord Kerr made um, connections with academia and with legal academia in particular. Uh, Professor Dixon, perhaps you could uh, tell us a little bit about the um, judgment residence scheme that Lord Kerr started when he was Lord Chief Justice. Yes, I, I'm not sure if he started it, but he certainly um, supported it very much and um, thought it was one of the more important roles that the various High Court judges uh, are, are asked to play in Northern Ireland, uh, supplementary to their judicial roles. He was he was very keen on that, and he himself. Um, you know, w would attend events, um, prize givings, and the like. He would invite academics to to give talks um, for the Judicial Studies Board. Um, he himself attended academic conferences. We have to remember that when he was appointed Lord Chief Justice, I mean, he was the first Chief Justice to be appointed after the Good Friday Agreement, and he was different from his predecessors. Not just in personality, but because of the times, he was able to be more public, publicly facing than his predecessors, who were reluctant to to get out and about or to make public statements. Uh, a because of the security risks, 
but B, because of the political sensitivities of, of this place. Um, uh, Brian Kerr was able to navigate the, the difficult political sensitivities here very, very well, I thought. He knew when to speak and when not to speak, but he didn't hide away. He, he was a, you know, a, a, a pretty public figure and his successor, um, Sir Declan Morgan, has certainly um, followed that model and, and you know, is now quite, quite a, you know, a political animal with, with a small p, um, soon to retire, unfortunately. Um, so yes, I think he was, he, was a, he was a friend of academics, a respecter of academics. He, he didn't himself uh, give that many lectures, I think, compared to, to, well, compared to Liddy Hale and other people who, who held uh, the presidency or the deputy presidency of the, of the court, the Supreme Court. But um, he did give speeches more, more so than his, his Lord Chief Justice predecessors did when he was in Northern Ireland. As a sort of follow-on from the kind of public-facing role that Lord Kerr was increasingly comfortable with um, as Lord Chief Justice, and, and indeed following his retirement, he um, gave a lengthy interview in The Guardian um, discussing a number of things. Uh, including um, the rule of law and the role of the Supreme Court, uh, particularly given the, um, recent cases arising out of Brexit and, and judgments, Miller 1, Miller 2, Cherry, and, and so on. Um, and so I'd just like to ask, first of all, Lady Hale, um, Lord Kerr mounted a pretty robust defense of the Supreme Court as an institution, um, as, as a, an incredibly important, but also as an essential institution in the proper constitutional functioning in the United Kingdom, and that any change uh, in its substantive role uh, should be resisted. What is your own view of the sort of position of the Supreme Court in, in the the constitutional functioning in the United Kingdom? Well, as I always say, um, there are three good reasons for having a Supreme Court which has final jurisdiction in respect of all parts of the United Kingdom. One reason is a mundane one, which is that because we take so few cases, we can give them more attention, and because we're not bound by uh, others' decisions, uh, we can think in a more principled way, and there are more of us, and we have more help, and so our decisions ought to be better than the decisions in the courts below. I'm not claiming that they always are, but in theory they ought to be, so that's number one reason for having us. Number two reason for having us is that there is a great deal of law which is either the same or nearly the same throughout the United Kingdom. And clearly, we need to have consistency in the application of that law and the interpretation of that law. Uh, and only the Supreme Court can give an authoritative decision which is binding on the courts in all parts of the United Kingdom. But the last reason why we need the Supreme Court is as the guardian of the Constitution of the United Kingdom. Part of that, of course, is this is perhaps the wrong verb, but the policing of the devolution settlements. 
to make sure that the devolved institutions are acting in accordance with the powers that the UK Parliament has given them. But part of that, of course, is also ensuring that the UK government acts within the powers that the law gives to the UK government and that the relationship between the government and the sovereign parliament, the UK parliament, is properly respected. All of that is what the Supreme Court is for. And um, that I would thoroughly uh, endorse uh, Lord Kerr's uh, ringing uh, defence of the Supreme Court. Of course I would. You wouldn't expect me to say anything else, would you? No. <laughs> Um, I think really Lord Kerr represented, um, certainly personified uh, himself and, and all of his colleagues, um, the value of the Supreme Court as an institution, um, both in terms of the its output, but also really in having a sort of final check on the development of the law and, and the final scrutiny of the development of the law. And of course, one of, one of the great cases where Lord Kerr dissented, but was ultimately vindicated, uh, and Professor Dixon, you brought this case into your article, was uh, the case of Gogren, where um, it was about retention of photographs and fingerprints and DNA profiles, where the Supreme Court ultimately said it wasn't an unlawful interference or uh, disproportionate interference with convention rights. Lord Kerr disagreed, and Strasbourg ultimately sided with him. Professor Dixon, perhaps you could tell us um, a little bit about the sort of reasoning that, that Lord Kerr had in saying that the Supreme Court shouldn't ultimately only seek to keep up with the Strasbourg court, but maybe go beyond it in certain respects. Yes, um, his attitude to, to the, the so-called mirror principle or the, or the Allah principle. Well, um, he's, he was consistently um, discontent, I think, with the, with the idea that um, the no more, no less principle was an absolute one. Um, he, he never really ag agreed with it, I think, and he made that clear uh, through dicta in his judgments and uh, through statements in his lectures. He thought it appropriate, and I, I would go so far as to say, Lady Hale can correct me if, if I'm wrong, but I would go to, so far as to say that his, his view is now the, the, the mainstream view amongst most of the, the senior judges. Um, they, they don't, um, well, they, they, might, they might hesitate, but they are prepared to go beyond Strasbourg when necessary, and then they see the the um, the relationship to Strasbourg is very much a, 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 a dialogic one. They're in dialogue with their colleagues in Strasbourg. They're not subservient to them. Uh, I know Lord um, Kerr gave a lecture called the modest uh, underworker. The role of the the Supreme Court as the modest underworker for the for the Strasbourg court, or or something to that effect. I, I think in his judgments and his speeches, he he made it clear that. When appropriate, and obviously it has to be only when appropriate, the Supreme Court should push the envelope a little and go beyond even where the European Court has gone. Uh, most obviously in situations where the European Court 
hasn't yet spoken. I mean, Lord Hoffman, for example, who's often thought of as a rather conservative judge when it comes to the the work of the European Court of Human Rights and, and, and gave a speech and, and wrote an article which was rather rather rude about the European Court in some respects. But even he in the in the P case that's been referred to already, the G case, the adoption case, was prepared to go beyond where the European Court had, had yet gone uh, because the European Court had never said there was a right to adopt a child. But Lord Hoffman said, well, once a state confers the right to adopt a child, it must not discriminate in in who can who can adopt uh, i think i think lord Kerr was very much in that school of thought he was prepared to to push the envelope vis-a-vis -vis, um convention rights at the same time and I, I think it's important to stress this he was very much in favor of developing the common law perhaps as a safeguard against the day god forbid that the human rights act is ever repealed but i think he saw it as part of his mission to 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 bolster the common law especially, for example, in that um, El Ziguli case that Lady Hale referred to at the beginning of this podcast, but, but also in, 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 other, um, in other cases um, to do with the right to life, especially. Uh, he was in favour of saying the common law should keep pace with uh, the European Convention, uh, a view which I would very much support myself. Um, so, yes, uh, I, I think... I think um, I hope that Allah is more or less dead, partly thanks to Lord Kerr. Well, maybe Lady Hale could shed some light on her views. Is Allah dead? Well, half of Allah is definitely not dead. Because what, of course, Lord Bingham said in Allah was that uh, we should keep pace with Strasbourg uh, uh, jurisprudence as it developed over time. Um, and his point was, he said no more, but certainly no less. It was uh, Lord Brown who later on said, in effect, um, no less, but certainly no more. Uh, but in fact, I think most of us would take the view that if it is clear that the United Kingdom is going to lose in Strasbourg, well, then we should probably go along with what Strasbourg has said, if that is clear. In other words, no less, unless we have very grave reservations about where Strasbourg has gone, which just does occasionally take place, but only occasionally. If we don't know what Strasbourg would do with the case, well, then obviously we have to try and work it out for ourselves. And the Rabone case um, about uh, the suicide of a psychiatric patient is a good example of that. And Lord Brown agreed with that as well. Um, if we may be going further than we think that Strasbourg did, well then most of us, if we think it is right in principle, would be prepared to do that. And it is quite often the case that Strasbourg catches up with us. Um, and uh, uh, no doubt the Goffrin case is, is an example of that. Um, and there have been others uh, as well uh, where, yes, Strasbourg has uh, agreed with us. One of the problems in the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission abortion case was that Strasbourg had said that this was within 
the margin of appreciation for the member states. This was particularly in relation to the Republic of Ireland, because at that stage, Strasbourg was very keen to be sensitive to the particular concerns in the Republic of Ireland. And because of that case, some of the members of the Supreme Court panel were not prepared to go further than they thought Strasbourg would go. And that was one of the difficulties about the knife-edge decision as to whether or not uh, the Northern Ireland abortion law uh, did uh, contravene uh, the Human Rights Convention. Um, so I'm saying all that because my views are very similar to Lord Kerr's on this, as you would expect, um, but uh, not everybody uh, has taken exactly the same view, I would say, particularly where something is regarded by Strasbourg as within the margin of appreciation. We could talk about the assisted suicide case of Nicholson, for example, where Lord Kerr and I took the same view. Um, but that was going beyond, it was taking the principles which Strasbourg had uh, adumbrated, but it was going beyond anything which Strasbourg had actually decided to date. Yeah, I, I think this goes back to what um... Ms. Onidike Danes was talking about earlier in terms of the direction of travel, in a way, because if the Supreme Court were to go beyond Strasbourg, then it might flag up a direction of travel for Strasbourg itself, um, something that Strasbourg may have avoided out of a, a desire to be sensitive to a margin of appreciation earlier but then latches on to what the Supreme Court says um, and, and, and follows that reasoning. Um, I wonder, Ms. Anadika Danes, whether you would talk about the confidence of Lord Kerr's judgment as time wore on uh, to go, to, to, to be sort of as forthright as he was. Does that give you as an advocate, does that give advocates a sort of, confidence in um, trying to be creative or trying creative arguments, trying to push the boundaries themselves at the bar? What a question. <laughs> um, well, before I come to that, I'll let that settle with me. Before I come to that, to follow on from what Bryce said, uh, um, I think you were very nearly right with the title of that talk. By Lord Kerr. I think it was the UK Supreme Court, the modest underworker of Strasbourg. I think it was in his flippant Charles talk. I only know that because it didn't do that many of those sorts of talks. Um, but then, but to come to your question, because I'm not avoiding it, uh, well, I, I think it would be hugely presumptuous for me to talk about whether Lord Kerr did or did not become more confident in his judgment. I would have thought by the time that any judge gets to the Supreme Court, they're pretty confident in their judgment. Um, but, but if I, and whether or not that allows an advocate to be more certain about trying to gauge the direction of travel, I can't speak for advocates generally. I, that's another thing I would presume to do. But for myself, it, it actually wasn't that. It was more the quality and nature of his argument that I was looking for. 
Um, I was looking to see where he had tethered or connected himself to something that I could see was that's fairly solid ground of where there might be a consensus of where we were and how he got to somewhere else that might that, which I might align myself with because that's where I wanted to go in my argument. So it was more the quality and nature of his analysis that I was looking for. I wasn't thinking, well, this is a fairly confident sounding judgment to her. I think that'll be impactful if I refer to it. It, it, it wasn't really like that at all. Um, I was an admirer of his analysis, but he's not the only one that I admire for that, um, because there are many judges I admire for that. We happen to have one of them on the panel right now, bearing her blushes. It, 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 wasn't, it really wasn't that. It was the feeling that, and maybe this came from his facility to dissent, it was the feeling that he did not always feel overly constrained by his jumping off point, and that, and that, and that enabled a certain jumping off point. And that's what I was looking for. I was always looking for how, how can I take further where we currently are, because where we currently are probably isn't overly serving my argument. So I want to know how I can move, move from that. And so he was quite a good judge for me to try and look at that, because to me, and I didn't know him personally, so I have no idea whether he is consciously intended to do it, but he seemed prepared to do that. Um, within, obviously, certain constraints, he wasn't completely unmoored from anything. Uh, and, and that's why I found him interesting. Uh, whether that was his confidence or not, I cannot speak to that because I don't know. But it certainly was a facility for his creative thinking that I was looking for. Grounded in, in analysis, not just creative thinking for the sake of it. Um, it's it's interesting what you say, Monia. Um, for me, watching watching his reasoning develop over time, he was someone who didn't see the law staying still. And particularly in judicial review, I think he very much enjoyed his time as judicial review judge in Northern Ireland. And uh, I noticed that one of the judgments he gave then, Tracy and MacDonald, which was a case about the oath which senior counsel were required to take when they took silk in Northern Ireland. Uh, he made an observation that the, uh, the courts in the United Kingdom have not entirely closed their minds to legitimate expectation. And... Uh, then again, uh, in Finucan, which was one of the, the the most recent judgments in the Supreme Court, he was setting out a whole the the whole of the development of the doctrine of legitimate expectation since then, and um, and and again, almost laying a trail of crumbs for for its for its development of where he he thought it should be sitting. But I think he very much had that sense that that the law does change. And that's that's why I was interested by his judgment in Adams, where he was throwing a little bit of shade on Carl Tona. And I would have been fascinated to see, will be fascinated to see where that one goes in future as well. Of course, because um, there's already proposals for reforming um, or statutorily, I think, reforming the Carl Tona doctrine in light of the Adams judgment. Um, so it will be interesting to see the legacy of that and the legacy of the nuance that Lord Kerr brought to Carltona um, in, in his decision in Adams. Um, 
I just wanted to um, ask any sort of final thoughts on Lord Kenny. I know it's terribly difficult to encapsulate such a lengthy, interesting um, career, um, but because we are short on time, um, any sort of final thoughts on Lord Kerr as a, as a jurist, um, as a judge, Lady Hale? Well, he was a, a great judge and jurist. Uh, I completely agree uh, with Professor Archbold that he did see the law as on the move, continually capable of development. Um, and he saw that in relation to the common law, and he saw that in relation to the human rights jurisprudence. Uh, so he was a great beacon. We didn't always agree with him, uh, but he was a beacon for us all. Uh, and my one regret is uh, that I couldn't persuade him to agree with me in the KU case about the Malayan massacre in 1948, when even he could not persuade himself that the government's refusal to have a public inquiry now to try and put the pieces together of the Malayan inquiry and the British inquiry was irrational. I thought it was a rare example of an irrational decision, but I couldn't persuade Lord Kerr to agree with me. One of the biggest disappointments of my judicial career and very unusual <laughs> from his point of view. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Lady Hale. Uh, Professor Dixon, any final thoughts? Well, I would just endorse what, what Lady Hale has said. I, I think he, he is probably the, the best um, judge to have come from this corner of the world. Uh, and it, those of us who, who live and work and operate the legal system here can be justly proud of the contribution he made to the development of the law throughout um, the, the United Kingdom. Um, he, he was inspirational to many people, I think, and um, it's just very, very sad indeed that he, he died so prematurely. Professor Archibald. Um, Lord Kerr gave one of his last um, conference speeches to us in Government Legal Service in Northern Ireland, and one of the questions at the end was someone had a son who was thinking of doing law, and what advice would he give? And the advice that he gave was that you should do law because you want to do it and that you should enjoy it. And I think that looking back over his career, you see someone who very much enjoyed putting his his very considerable gifts uh, to good use in law. And I'm just sorry that we we lost him uh, too soon. Thank you. And Ms. Anadika Danes, any final thoughts? Yes, well have to say, um, given my particular interest, I rather share the disappointment that Lady Kale had about the KU public inquiry, but we'll leave that to one side. Um, well, one thing actually hasn't been said of him, although I suppose almost, perhaps tangentially it has, and that is his generosity uh, in giving of himself and his time. And I, it, he always struck me, as I say, I didn't know him personally, but he always struck me as somebody who loved the law. The, the law, its development, and its significance, and its potential impact. And I remember, I, I think, he gave one of the first uh, lectures uh, or presentations 
in relation to get the gay pride. That that was it was something that was sort of gaining in popularity in Northern Ireland. Uh, it being a very very difficult thing to have a gay pride march in Northern Ireland, frankly, um, I'm pretty much unheard of when I first came to Northern Ireland uh, that anybody would openly declare themselves in that way. Uh, but anyway, by the time we got round to inviting uh, Lord Kerr, he had no qualms whatsoever about coming and giving, let's put it this way, a very robust Chatham House presentation <laughs> in, during that week, uh, which was immensely inspiring. Um, but he, there was so, it, it happened at the time and he was doing so much else. And the fact that he uh, could uh, bring, agree to come and do something like that uh, to a relatively small audience, I suppose, uh, I just thought that, that, that said something about him. Uh, it, it really did. And then there were other times when I've seen him come and be prepared in, an, you know, in, a, in, in a group of, of lawyers to, to agree to come and give a presentation. It's nothing that's going to, to hit the headlines anywhere. But he's just making himself available. And as, and as Claire said, his, his very great judicial talents and his, his, his skill with the law, available to others uh, to, to see and to take and do with what they will when they apply it in their own lives or, or their own, uh, own work. Uh, yes, he was a very generous uh, judge from that point of view. And, and uh, I, I share with others the disappointment that he's, he's no longer here. Um, but but he, if he had to go, he, he went when he was still planning things to do. And he was, he, you know, and, and, and still active and busy at all to all the counts, and, and that's, that I suppose is something. Yes, um, I think in years to come we'll be still talking about the legacy of Lord Kerr because it will be a, 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 an indelible legacy to, to dissect and to um, be influenced by for years to come. I would like to extend our sincere thanks to Lady Hale, Professor Archbold, Professor Dixon, and Ms. Onyedike Danes for giving us their time and their insights into the career of an extraordinary judge. We hope this provides an insight not only into Lord Kerr as a judge and a jurist, but also more broadly the role of a judge, especially within the higher courts in Northern Ireland and the UK. For more information, please check out our blog on the LawPod website, where we will list all of the sources referred to in the episode, and the forthcoming book entitled The Judicial Mind, A Fest Shrift for Lord Kerr, edited by Professor Dixon and Dr. Connor McCormick, with contributing chapters from Lady Hale and Professor Archibald. You can also follow forthcoming episodes in the Legal Lexicon series on Twitter, at QUB Law Pod.